It is a wonderful privilege to, to return to Tyndale and to be invited to share in the ministry of the Word with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to attempt to uh, place this passage in Isaiah within the broader context of the prophet's life and ministry. So if you go forth leaving today wanting to know more, I'd encourage you to, to open the book of Isaiah and to read chapters 7 through 12 and 36 through 39 in particular. Uh, please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as the end of the semester approaches in the midst of our busyness, we have gathered together, or better yet, you have gathered us together in anticipation and expectation of hearing you speak to us. So this morning we join with your servant Samuel in saying, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was nine years ago, this past September, that I first arrived at Tyndale. Sometimes that's hard for me to believe. I arrived to begin an MDiv in pastoral studies. I arrived with high hopes. Having completed my undergraduate degree at a secular university, where the priorities of the student body often seem to be getting drunk, hooking up, and achieving good grades in that particular order, I was excited about the prospects of living and studying in authentic Christian community, where a student life at the university I had come from had been characterized by a superficial ethos of selfishness and self-absorption, things at Tyndale would be much different, I told myself. With a great sense of anticipation, I moved my stuff into my room in 3 North, And my excitement grew when I discovered that there was a common kitchen area with a refrigerator where students could keep a few grocery items. Now, I haven't been upstairs recently. Does that kitchen area still exist on the third floor? Okay, good. (laughs) I figured if I could keep a few simple breakfast items there, not only would I be able to grab a quick breakfast on my way to class, but as every student knows, I would be able to somehow stretch out the money on my meal card just a little bit further. So I went out to the grocery store, bought a big two-liter container of orange juice, wrote my name on it, stuck it in the fridge, and then I headed off north for a few days for the seminary retreat. The first morning after returning from the retreat, I lugged myself out of bed and trudged down the hall, looking forward to starting the day with a refreshing glass of orange juice. I opened the fridge door, I reached in and took hold of the orange juice container. It seemed unusually light. I held out my glass and began to pour the container. Three drops of orange juice came forth from that two-liter container of orange juice. And before those three drops of orange juice hit the bottom of my glass, my conception of what life would be like at Tyndale had been forever altered. With shocking clarity, it dawned on me that Tyndale is not the kingdom of God. (laughs) Reality had rudely interrupted, shattering my conception of Tyndale as some type of idyllic community. This morning, I have the privilege of kicking off a series which will take you to the end of the semester, entitled Reflections on Advent, Holy Interruptions. Over the next four weeks, you will engage with some of the scripture passages that are passages that are traditionally associated with the season of Advent. As you do so, you will be confronted by the interruption of the most real reality, 
the living personal presence of the triune God. This interruption of the holy is both disorienting and reorienting, for it is the invasion of the word of God that both kills and makes alive. It is the coming of the true light into the world. This word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, but it can also be painfully blinding to creatures such as ourselves, who for so long have stumbled along in darkness. The word of the Lord which came to the prophet Isaiah, which we read this morning, would have been a particularly unsettling interruption for Ahaz, king of Judah. Ruling monarchs never like to hear about a coming king, as it calls their own rule into question and points to the limit of their reign. Just think, for example, about Herod's reaction upon learning from the Magi about the birth of Jesus. Just two chapters earlier in the book of Isaiah, before the passage we heard this morning, the prophet had been sent out to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. There, amidst the gathering darkness of the political intrigue and conspiracy which sought to remove Ahaz from his throne, the Lord, through his servant Isaiah, spoke to the king. The central thrust of his message was this. These countries which conspire against you, are they not headed by mere men? But I am the Lord. Stand firm in faith, or you will not stand at all. Ahaz was even offered the opportunity to ask the Lord for a sign to strengthen him in his faith. But Ahaz refused to ask. He did not believe the Lord. Having lost his footing of faith, Ahaz fell into the clutches of fear and in his impatience sought to secure his own future through entering into an alliance with the superpower of his day, the Assyrian Empire. This pathetic act of political maneuvering would have profound consequences for the very armies of Assyria in which Ahaz sought a security would one day according to the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Isaiah, cover the land of Judah like a swarm of locusts, threatening to snuff out Jerusalem itself. However, the prophet's message was not all doom and gloom. In the midst of the darkness, a light would shine. A faithful king would arise. In reading through the book of Isaiah, in anticipation of being with you this morning, I was struck by the profound connection between faith and patience. The general scenario throughout the book of Isaiah involves the word of the Lord, the word of promise coming to an individual or group through the mouth of the prophet. Those who receive that word in faith are then called to wait and trust that God will do what he says he will do. But waiting is always difficult, especially in the midst of a culture as impatient as our own. We live in a world of instantaneous results, quick quick fixes, and instant gratification, often no more than a mouse click away. We are taught, in the words of the song, to want it all and to want it now. Amidst the realized eschatology of our society, the observance of Advent becomes something of a countercultural statement, a type of spiritual discipline. While the malls have all of their Christmas decorations up and the radio stations are playing carols and other festive music and Starbucks has been serving their Christmas blend since November 1st, we, who are observing Advent, 
are still waiting. Waiting not only for Christmas, the day of our dear Savior's birth, but waiting for his coming again in glory. The season of Advent is training in patience, the type of patience which characterizes the Christian life. When we forget that we are waiting upon God to fulfill his promises, we can fall into the trap of thinking that it's all about us. It's up to us to make something happen. And like Ahaz, seek to secure our own desired results and outcomes for our lives, for our organizations and our churches, through entering into alliance with the various powers which seek to rule the world in our own day. This morning, each one of us here is confronted by the question, who or what is your Assyria? To whom or to what do you turn when God seems to be far away or taking too long? The season of Advent is not only a season of waiting, it is also a season of preparation as we prepare ourselves for the return of the king. It is a season of patience and preparation which is reflective of the Christian life as a whole. The great 20th century theologian Karl Barth vividly captured this dynamic when he described the Christian life as a hastening that waits and a waiting that hastens. As part of our preparations this Advent, we are called in the light of the gospel to come to grips with our own Assyrias to confess before the Lord those false alliances that we have entered into, which so easily hinder and entangle us, and to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. In short, we are invited to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Returning to the book of Isaiah, let us flash forward some 30 years from the time of the prophet's confrontation with Ahaz. The Assyrians, in whom Ahaz had placed his trust, are now draped over the land like a curtain and have laid siege to Jerusalem. Under the onslaught of the Assyrian war machine, Ahaz's successor, Hezekiah, finds himself cooped up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. An Assyrian diplomat meets with Hezekiah's officials at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field to set the terms for Jerusalem's surrender. His speech is pure propaganda, intended to discourage every Jew within earshot by asking them, in plain view of the full military might of the Assyrian Empire, to answer the question, whom do you trust? Upon whom do you depend? In the midst of the gathering darkness, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah, who proclaimed to King Hezekiah, do not be afraid. Now, perhaps right about now, you're experiencing a sense of deja vu. Haven't we been here before? Is there any basis for hoping that things would turn out any differently with Hezekiah than they did with Ahaz? Any basis at all? Only the word of the promise that had been previously delivered through the prophet Isaiah. The word of the promise contained within our scripture passage this morning. The promise that light would shine on those walking in darkness that the Lord would miraculously deliver his people and that he would raise up a faithful king who would govern with justice and righteousness. In the face of the gathering darkness, Hezekiah stood firm in faith and turned to the Lord in prayer. Through Hezekiah's faithful intercession, the city and the people were saved as the Lord worked a great deliverance of his people, rescuing them from the floodwaters which had come up to their neck 
and shattering the iron rod of their oppressor, much like the Lord had done on the day of Midian's defeat. Now, I think there are some resonances here with the Tyndale story. I'm sure you've all heard the story, the story of how Tyndale, then Ontario Bible College and Ontario Theological Seminary, was drowning in debt. Of how, in the face of the gathering darkness, there were men and women who stood firm in faith. Some of them are even here this morning. Ask them, and they will tell you how the Lord intervened and pulled this institution up from the pit of insolvency. You may not have been there, but the very fact that you are here this morning indicates that you are an heir to this story. You are part of a new generation that God is raising up to stand firm in faith in the midst of the marketplace, the home, the academy, and the parish. You have been engrafted into this particular legacy of God's faithfulness, so that like Hezekiah, you may be people who stand in the gap, interceding for the renewal of the church and the world. Now, in case some of you are worried that I'm sounding too triumphalistic, let me restate what I said earlier. Tyndale is not the kingdom. And on top of that, Hezekiah is not the king. Our passage this morning in Isaiah chapter 9 extends to a horizon far beyond the reign of Hezekiah. After all, Hezekiah did eventually die. And about 100 years later, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. So Hezekiah is not the king. And Tyndale is not the kingdom. But... Both Tyndale and Hezekiah, by the grace of God, stand as witnesses that point beyond themselves to the true king and his coming kingdom. This king, who we know by the name of Jesus, is the holy interruption of the faithfulness of God. In the midst of a world enslaved in sin and darkness, God once again spoke the words, let there be light. And on a dark night, Somewhere in Bethlehem, close to 2,000 years ago, a child was born to a teenage mother and laid in a manger. In the famous words of Martin Luther, to the child in that manger, we must point and say, there is the word of God. The arrival of this child turned the world upside down and interrupts all of our preconceptions about the way things are and the way they should be. Isaiah proclaimed, the government shall be upon his shoulders which, as the church father Tertullian observed, is a rather bizarre claim to make. After all, Tertullian asks, what king is there who bears the sign of his dominion on his shoulder and not rather upon his head as a crown or in his hand as a scepter or else a mark in some royal apparel? But the one new king of the new ages, Jesus Christ, carried on his shoulder both the power and excellence of his new glory, even his cross, so that according to our former prophecy, he might thenceforth reign from the tree as Lord. Amidst the gathering darkness of Gethsemane and Golgotha, Jesus Christ stood firm in faith, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we may die to our sins and live for righteousness. Jesus stared down sin, death, and the devil, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle out of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Or in the words of the great Christ hymn from Paul's letter to the Philippians, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This passage almost seamlessly flows into the end of the scripture passage that Karina read for us. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. We don't yet behold this reality with our eyes. We continue to wait for the coming of God's kingdom and for the return of the king. But we wait in the blessed assurance of the promise of God, for we are told that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Clinging to this promise, amidst the gathering darkness of the Second World War, as the Nazi war machine spread its wings over Europe, the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer sat alone at his desk in the Benedictine monastery of Vital, reflecting upon this very passage. Bonhoeffer writes, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The holy zeal of God for this divine kingdom guarantees that this kingdom will remain for eternity and will reach its final fulfillment despite all human guilt, despite all resistance. It will not depend on whether we participate. God brings his plans to fruition with or despite us. But God desires for us to be with him. Not for God's own sake, but for our sake. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus. This is the mystery of this holy season. But we cry out with joy for a child has been born for us, a son given to us. I believe that Jesus Christ, a true human being, born of the Virgin Mary, and true God, begotten of the Father in eternity, is my Lord. Brothers and sisters, in the gathering darkness of late November, in the midst of the swirling chaos of term papers and final exams, amidst the stress and intrigue of navigating through family life at Christmas time, and in the face of the uncertainties of the new year which will soon be upon us, stand firm in faith. Stand firm in the faith of the one who stands firm for us, the true King, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And let us this Advent season join with all of the saints in crying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and shine your light upon us. Dispel the darkness without and within. Lead us by your light in in paths of righteousness. Ignite us by your Holy Spirit that we may be a city on a hill which radiates with the light of the coming kingdom. We ask all of this in the name of the true King, the light of the world. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.